and welcome back to Devin's Reunion Show, a DSLR Film New <laughs> Podcast episode number 112. We've got a lot of different cameras to discuss. Surprise, surprise, more action cameras hitting the market. What the heck is wrong with these companies today? Just creating more and more stuff. But first, Devin, it's been what, like a month? Or more? Where have you been, man? It's what have you been up two to? two weeks. Relax. Guy, I th- people emailed me thinking you were dead, <laughs> and now you're alive again. You're here on the show. What yes. did you do? Like, uh, From what I understand, you were at some sort of convention hanging out for a week or two? <laughs> yes. I was, uh, I was working for CBS at the Republican National Convention uh, in Cleveland. So... Uh, that was that was kind of interesting because it was a whole lot of nothing for us because we are what no, is known as pool. So that means all the five networks all pitch into one camera crew. Uh, usually another uh, crew, uh, company will handle transmission and a bunch of other stuff. And so we were part – it was our turn, CBS's turn, to be the pool for the RNC. And – most of them are like on the floor or they're in the stands with their cameras and the video switchers and all running around doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We were tasked with uh, the press releases, which the RNC did like one 20 minute press release every morning. That was really just like, <laughs> here's what we're going to do today. And it just listed off the schedule. And that's pretty much it. There wasn't really anything interesting about questions from the press or anything like that. Well, the thing is, is because we're pool, that kind of prevents CBS from taking us away to go do something else elsewhere because we have to always be ready in case the RNC decides or Trump or someone else decides to do a press release. We have to be ready to jump on it uh, and broadcast that to the five networks. So no one did that, though, um, (laughs) including Trump. So there was maybe three or four uh, morning meetings that we covered. And then that that was all we did for about two weeks. So, so you basically was, just like hung around a hotel room and then like woke up, had your coffee, shot your morning press release and then hung out the rest of the time. We hung out for the rest of the time. It was still uh, it was still a little tough because we had to wait kind of till the event was over. So we usually didn't get back to the hotel to like 1 a.m. just to make sure they weren't going to do anything. And then we got to because we're proactive, we get up super early. So even though it's like a 930 uh, presser, uh, we get there at like 830 uh, which means we get up at like 7.30, so we know that all of our gear is charged and ready to go. So, uh, But uh, it was still fun to walk around uh, Cleveland and everything else, and we got to like you know enjoy some of the bars and stuff like that all around the area because there wasn't a whole lot for us to do in that situation. So, uh, But still, I enjoyed it. I had a blast. Oh, that I mean, I, I don't know. I, it sounds nice. I don't mind hotel life for a little while, but uh, <laughs> that's a lot of waiting, especially staying up till yeah. one in the morning to hopefully catch some magical press release. That well, never comes. <laughs> I'm glad to have you back, man. And uh, I'm glad to be back. Some other news. Devin was telling me. I, can I spoil this? Is you're 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 leaving your home state? Is that what I come to uh, understand? Yeah, yeah. No, I I am. I'm uh, moving to California, uh, kind of around the Los Angeles area, just to. Uh, try something different and, uh, you know, do something a little different for myself. Uh, you know, it's, there's one or two opportunities out there that I'm exploring as well as all the work that I've accomplished here is kind of starting to die off and not really going anywhere. So it's just a, it's an opportunity for me to go out and make mistakes and, uh, I'd rather do it now than later. Uh, you know, there's, there's time for me to kind of settle down and get a, a stable job and work a nine to five or something like that. But for now I kind of enjoy the uncertainty of it. You going to do any narrative? I would love to do narrative. That's my whole reason for trying to get out there is try to explore more narrative options and short films and do a lot more stuff like that. Uh, as weird as it is, cause so much right now of what I do with, uh, being a technical director and everything else, it's all broadcast. And that's what I've been doing for the past two years. That's really what I'm trying to get away from. And I'm trying to move more into narrative and get on more sets and do some something different, something more fun and interesting to see if I love that more than broadcast. Well, good luck, man. Maybe you can get in on a documentary or something like that. On my end, you guys have heard from me like not more than three days ago with the mm-hmm. Planet Mid show. But uh, I can say that right now in the studio closet right next to me, I am home brewing some hard alcohol (laughs) apple cider. Apparently, uh, one of my friends put me onto this. You can uh, dump some cider yeast into a bottle of apple juice and let it ferment for about a week and a half to two weeks. And it makes like a pseudo cider slash uh, apple wine sort of thing. So if it doesn't explode, I've got it in a secondary containment unit right now. I could (laughs) end up with uh, some alcohol by the gallon. So we'll see how that 
turns out. Uh, but other than that, nothing new to report. I have a small dog attacking me <laughs> right now. And I think with that note, Devin, it is probably time for the news. Time for the news. First thing up, and I'm not even in the right spot here, is actually a weird action cam. I mentioned at the top of the show that action cams have continued to be released, and this is one that is yet to be available in the United States. Uh, it did show up in Japan. I got this uh, kind of weirdly uh, via some YouTube links that uh, kind of drug me off into the wrong direction. Then I found this camera. It's the FDR-X3000. Now, this camera is only available uh, for sale in ja- uh, Japan right now, and it is Japanese language, but you can buy it on Amazon for $742. Now, the reason I bring this action cam up is Devin and I both uh, pre-ordered and got uh, these Yi 4K action cams. And one of the unique things about them is the ability to image stabilize at 1080p via the sensor and some uh, gyroscopic motion sensors inside of the device. Well, this camera itself does something a little bit different. And you'll see right here from the diagram that there's arrows. What does that look like, Devin? It looks like it's optically stabilized. Holy DJ. crap! Optical image stabilization. So in a tiny little camera, what they've done here is they've included optical image stabilization in the camera, allowing for the capability of 4K internal image stabilization in an action cam. Now it has made the price hefty. And Devin, you had a concern about uh, image stabilization in a camera like this. What were you thinking? Well, I, it's, there's usually you know a, a few moving parts. You're talking about lens elements, uh, which we tend to think about taking care of and being careful. And uh, they're being, I imagine them being thrown around, being dropped, and everything else. Uh, my GoPro goes through a lot of abuse because I throw it in situations where I don't trust a normal camera to survive. And so this being image stabilized just makes me think. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that there's any evidence that it wouldn't be just as good as a GoPro in really rough environments suffering a lot of trauma. Uh, but it's one of those that makes me think, like, um, I'm sure they thought about it, but is there kind of a limitation if you drop your camera from two stories? Is it going to break it uh, as opposed to something like a GoPro where, you know, we get surprised uh, how long those things survive? So interesting you should ask that question. I was going to tell, we were talking about this before the show, so I was going to jump in and tell Devin why he was wrong, but instead I wanted to save it for the show. The the (laughs) sensor itself, um, a lot of times with these in-camera image stabilization systems, because the space is so small, they're not actually using a direct drive system, which means there's no attached bits or pieces to the sensor. Instead, they float the sensor and they use magnets to move the sensor around to compensate for that. Now, that isn't always the case. There are uh, some systems that do use uh, really tiny little gyros and and other bits to do that. But with that in mind, it's sort of in the lens itself, the element that they're moving around is sort of in an encaged area. And the magnets are trying to compensate by moving the sensor around as fast as possible to compensate for motion. So even if you were to just beat the tar out of this thing, your sensor would never fall so, or your lens element would never fall so far out of grace as to stop the unit from working itself does that make any sense no that's that is making sense because it's um you know when we think of uh image stabilization on lenses and things like that we think about motors whirling away and actually spinning and moving things uh but you're right with a, a situation like using magnets in order to compensate it's technically it's a moving part because the sensor itself would be floating and moving but then at the same time it's not like a moving part where it's got gears that are going to grind together um or possibly come out of alignment and things like that so i i I think you're right that they probably have thought about it and it probably is uh pretty stable and i hope it would be uh pretty rugged considering the price point of like 750 740 for this yeah, if you um, if you really want to dig in deeper, there's uh, some interesting stuff on Wikipedia about how they accomplish the in-camera image stabilization. So uh, you might want to check that out uh, if you really want to dive deep <laughs> into the weeds. Now, basically, the reason I brought this camera into the lineup is because not only does it provide 4K, uh, 
and Sony's kind of like flailed around a bit. I think with the uh, FDRX one thousand for quite some time, which was it did okay, but it wasn't really a top seller. But now they're up in the ante. They're up in the price tag on this substantially. The image stabilization is going to make this a lot more expensive. Uh, and if the Japanese price of seven hundred and fifty ish dollars is to be believed, how do you think this will compete with like GoPro and some of these even lower price action cams like the Yi four K action cam that we've been we, you and I both purchased? Well, it's you know, the, and that's the thing is that. Uh, it's where where does it fit? Because we always think of action cams as more or less kind of disposable, or at least like a secondary camera. Uh, for some people, this would be the price of their primary camera if they were to go out and get like a, a Canon Rebel or something like that. Um, it's it's really hard to swallow that price. I think for people who are in the market for an action camera, I think Sony thinks that making a premium camera that beats all other cameras is what's going to justify that price. But as we've seen with GoPro, if it doesn't like really change the game in terms of what it's doing, like going 4k or something like that, like we saw with the session, uh, if it's really not delivering on all fronts, people aren't really going to be able to take it at that price. And at the same time, besides the stabilization, I'm not sure what features this camera's offering that isn't offered in GoPro. And like you say, with that Yao Yi 4K camera, um, while it is significantly cheaper, and so many people have done quality tests of like you know the the video image quality and the battery life and everything else. Well, I think a lot of people fail to realize, though, is that it is less of a camera. Even if the quality of that $250 4K camera matches a GoPro Hero 4 Black, um, there are other things which people may not care about, but there are other things like there's no HDMI out, there's no way to get audio input, there's no way to change uh, the relative focal length of, or, uh, you know, degree of view, I guess, uh, for how it takes pictures. And so the, it, there, there really isn't a whole lot of features. It does one thing, and that's kind of like record video, uh, and that's it. And so that being considered, a lot of us may not care about that other stuff. But for me, I'm like, oh, you know, if I'm in a situation where I need to monitor this camera, I can't use the cheaper 4K camera. Or if I'm in a situation where I don't want a really wide shot, I can't use that camera. And then some other features, too, that I, I don't think are totally necessary, like um, uh, the built-in de-warping. I tried it out, and it does work pretty well, and I think it's pretty impressive, but uh, the only time I would do that is if the camera's locked off, because as soon as you start to move a camera that's like kind of de-warping that extreme, uh, it, to me, it feels like a fisheye effect. It's not even so much that like you just see a fisheye effect, but I feel like the edges are so stretched that when you move, uh, things accelerate so quickly out of the frame. It's kind of a weird feeling, but I it, it feels off to me if there's a lot of movement with that turned on. So it's all give and take. Uh, I know that I won't be buying a Sony 4K camera for that price. That's hard for me to justify uh, for that one feature of image stabilization, especially considering how cheap the gimbals are that work with Hero cameras and everything else. I know it's bigger and bulkier, but kind of like you consider pricing and everything else, it's, it's, it's hard to justify. Now, I'm looking online right now, and you mentioned camera prices. Uh, imagine for a moment, if you will, picking up <laughs> a Panasonic GX85 which what yeah. is about 600 bucks for the body maybe 650 and you can get mm -hmm. it with a kit lens the 12 to 32 millimeter for around 700 bucks so uh, that's in the same price comparison category and that has a lot more big boy there's features. a lot you can do with it exactly <laughs> you know and if you're thinking like well would i go with this or would i go with this other one and it's like man i don't at 700 and some odd dollars you you better really have a good compelling argument for getting a well, camera and, like that and it's exactly it. i think you've hit it it's it's the fact that that camera action cameras kind of have a narrow use case for us as tools uh for telling stories and making films and that's partly because of their look that's partly because we can't really control their uh their lens choice and everything else so it's like it, it fits very well and does one job very well but you to spend that much money for something that does one thing very well when you could spend that money getting a more general purpose camera that could do a lot very well so now uh, speaking of saving money let's talk about some lenses here and this is kind of interesting uh we've uh, been talking about on the show for a couple weeks now about samyung and their 50 millimeter f1.4 sony mount lens uh, this is supposed to be significantly cheaper about 600 
and $99 compared to the $1,200 or $1,400 and $1,800 respectively. They're asking for their 55.18 and their 50 millimeter F1.4 that was recently announced. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, some of the early reports on this, and this is from uh, camera rumor or Sony camera Sony Alpha Rumors.com. Man, that's a, a mouthful. <laughs> who's actually covering a French site and translating? And if you look at these results, the Samyang, according to at least uh, these sharpness uh, charts, is showing better sharpness in the center overall and in the corners compared to the Sony Zeiss 50 millimeter f1.4. So less than half the price. Uh, image <laughs> right. quality seems to be, and you know, the, this could be a fluke. Maybe they got a really bad copy of the 50, Zeiss 50 millimeter f1.4, but look at these numbers, Devin. What do you think? Is this just a fluke or do you think uh, we could have a winner on our hands as far as the Samyang 50 millimeter f1.4 is concerned? Uh, I, I think, like you've experienced with some of uh, your Sony glass, is that it's not like Sony makes bad glass, but then I think there's several situations where, you know, like the Zeiss name doesn't mean anything when it's coming from Sony anymore. <laughs> and you you consider like a lot of this stuff and it's like it's kind of marketing. And is, is Sony kind of pulling a like, we'll cut back our price on the camera bodies so that when you, you know, buy our glass, we're kind of making some of it back there because so few people make glass for our cameras. I think that the fact that they came out with something that's cheaper and performed better uh, just tells me that this market is ripe for uh, third-party companies, your Sam Young, Rokinon, whatever, to come in and start messing about and providing good native options for Sony bodies. Because I think um, it, thanks to the A7S and all that it's done for that Sony brand of mirrorless cameras, uh, I think there's enough people walking around shooting on this stuff that there is a market for third-party to come in and start making great glass for it. Well, they... Ha- uh, Sigma already has the MC11 or M- MCS11 adapter that's from Canon to uh, right. Sony mount. Uh, do you think we're going to see more of that in terms of Tamron and uh, maybe Tokina and these other lens manufacturers? I, I would think so. I mean, this is pure I, I speculation, that, though, of course. Yeah, like, it's all speculation, but Devin I would have think the inside so. Track. <laughs> because it's, uh, it, it's not like you, when you consider uh, – I mean, you, you understand a lot of uh, electrical engineering stuff. Making these kinds of mounts and things like that and the way they communicate, it's, it's, it's all rather the same. Like if you, you make a, a piece of cannon glass uh, that fits on a cannon and works with a cannon, it's not that much different to do it for different brands once you understand the way that they're using their technology. So it's, it's totally – I think it, we just haven't seen it yet because – not enough people have been shooting on Sony cameras. I know a few of my friends who really love the Sony DSLRs, uh, but I never saw anyone actually in the public shooting with one until the A7S came out as basically a hybrid video camera. Most people were using it for video, and uh, and it suddenly it's exploded. And now the like when I was at the RNC, everyone that had a mirrorless was shooting with an A7S. I really didn't see any GH4s. It's like the year of the A7S II. Because anyone who was shooting mirrorless, which I would say is like a third, because it's either they're on cell phones, believe it or not, really? doing Facebook Live. Yeah. I mean, the smaller productions like blogs and small internet channels, they just use their cell phone and they do Facebook Live and they go, look, I'm live broadcasting and it's costing me nothing compared to, you know, the literally million dollars that get thrown in for these big networks to do live broadcasting in these situations. Obviously, the quality of the product is much different, but <laughs> the uh, I know people use their cell phones and i've seen people who go around with like kind of smaller news cameras if they're a solo person and there's of course you know the more serious productions that have spent like twenty thousand dollars on an eng camera but uh whenever i saw mirrorless somebody using a dslr it was either a 5d which i'm still seeing out there for video purposes or it was the a7s2 so kind of interesting it was the a7s2 with canon glass keep in mind a lot of l glass on a7s2s but it, this really feels like the year of the A7S II for people who shoot mirrorless. So I was kind of surprised at that. And it just makes sense for these companies to get a hint and go, you know, we could probably make some money if we start, you know, producing our uh, more affordable glass in this market. Now, you mentioned the A7S. Uh, 
MLS uh, in a new situation, I, w- I don't think the uh, GA or GH4 would really be appropriate, especially like in, on convention floors and, and things like that. It's way too dark for a GH4 in a lot of those, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, 1600 uh, ISO, you'd be pushing it. And you'd, even with a, you know, a wide open aperture F1.4, you're, you're probably at the limit unless you have external lights of some kind that you're carrying around with you. Uh, in, in most cases, uh, you're kind of right, but you got to remember that uh, more or less the competition, uh, the GH4 is maybe about as noisy as a two-third inch uh, $20,000 Sony XD cam. Uh-huh. Like, when you compare their gain, like, we're talking about really small sensors, and obviously when you spend a lot of money on an ENG camera, it does really well for a two-third inch sensor in low light, but there's just physical limitations right now with the technology we have. So... A GH4, uh, you're, you're right. It, it doesn't bend as well in those situations, but it's also not surprising that when it's low light, there's some noise and people come to expect it in new situations and in the broadcast industry because that's what cameras have been, digital video cameras have been doing for a long time. So you're right. Uh, there was still also a lot of um, C300s out there, which, you know, perform pretty well in low light. And I see a lot of people defaulting to that. Um, it sounds like, too, some of the major networks may be dropping uh, the eng cameras you think of the ones you, you know that everyone thinks of when they think of news mm-hmm. dropping that for uh, specialized sony f5s so because they want to the sony f5 can use the eng lens and act like a two-third inch sensor and then they can throw cannon glass on there and do some shallow depth of field and do something that's more cinematic which it looks like news is trying to find a way to become more visually interesting you know to bring in more viewership so right now they're kind of moving in that uh that market too and so when you look at that it's like the bloggers and everyone running around with A7Ss, you know, maybe they're onto something with having a full frame sensor and, uh, you know, good low light performance and everything else. Because even the broadcasters are kind of moving away from that tiny sensor factor. So, well, even if you're filming by yourself, uh, I would say the A7S Mark II's uh, autofocus in video mode, and if you just turn on face detect, um, it's surprising yeah. how good a single talking head can do standing in front of the camera uh, without any control of the camera other than start stop recording. Uh, the AF system will kick in and and really shine. Uh, I don't see. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, when I'm thinking about it, as a as a person who doesn't do news very much, but occasionally has mm. to do like convention coverage or, or something where you have to be nimble, uh, an FS5, uh, it's it's still a little bit big compared to a A7S Mark II. So, you know, if you really wanted to just be nimble, you strap mm-hmm. the uh, audio adapter on there, put a decent uh, boom mic of some kind on there, and, you know, as long as you're shooting on, like, a 35-millimeter F2, you don't really have to be that far away from the camera to fill up the screen, and you yeah. pretty much could run the camera from, you know, an arm's reach out to hit the button, and a single light, maybe two light sources at the most, and you'd be you know, cooking with grease, you'd be able to go shoot yeah. whatever you wanted. And the, that's so tempting compared to some of these other things, <laughs> especially since it's a full frame sensor, the, right? The image yeah. quality, if they're really looking to go more cinematic, I mean, I, I shoot on the Part GH4. What you have to understand too, is that while it may not necessarily get all the way to you in a certain quality that you expect, um, their broadcast won't touch anything. That's like four, two, zero. It yeah, has to be four, two, two or better. And that's just broadcast standards. And with the emerging Rec 2020 uh, color format, and we're looking at possible HDR TVs in the the coming years and everything else, uh, they wouldn't necessarily go for that. But you're right. Like, I kind of see smaller smaller ends or as what they call VJs, uh, which are journalist reporters who shoot themselves. They're their own camera guy, audio guy, and journalist and producer, all the same person. They they usually run around with... um, you know, those uh, kind of handy cams, those, uh, you know, prosumer level video cameras, JVC, stuff like that. And this might be a good opportunity for them to start exploring mirrorless options where they're even smaller, even lighter, uh, you know, easier autofocus systems and low light performance and all that kind of stuff. Be really fascinating to move into that market. Like I said, though, you'd be surprised how many people are walking around with iPhones, you know, just hooked up to Twitter and Facebook. It's it's surreal. <laughs> 
Yeah, seeing someone do an interview on a freaking iPad, it's like, what are you doing? And they've got like an XLR audio in, input and like a giant right, yeah. case around it and like lens adapters. Like at this point, you might as well just get a real camera. You Come just on. get a camera. Come All on, right, man. Uh, moving on. Let's talk about the giveaway real quick. Uh, this is uh, sponsored by Planet5D.com. Thanks, Mitch, for uh, jumping in on this. Uh, they're, we're giving away this guy right here, which is the Cineo Matchbox. It's a uh, four ninety five value. I think they're giving away two of them. And it is a sexy little light that fits on top of your camera and provides quite a bit of output for the price. The giveaway is for uh, several of these. So swing over to planet5d.com slash giveaway noob. Again, that's planet5d.com slash giveaway noob. Sign up and sign your friends up and uh, you can get 10 extra entries into the contest to win this beautiful little light. Uh, Devin, you said you saw some of these on the the show floor at uh, the DNC? Yeah, because uh, just about anyone who has an ENG camera, uh, they usually have a friction arm on top of their camera, and they have one of these lights. And the friction arm kind of helps them to keep it off camera so it doesn't quite look at like a deer in headlights. Uh, but I actually saw, I think, probably two of these uh, that some people were doing in place of LEDs because they're small, they're very bright, they can reach. And, um, and two, with it being you know a kind of a big, soft source, it's not quite as terrible as uh, you know, the old school way of doing it, which were like tiny little HMI lights that ran off of the big battery in the back, uh, that would give you this really harsh light that's kind of close to the lens, and it wasn't great. So a lot of them switched over to LED lights years ago, and uh, I see some of the people now kind of choosing better LED lights instead of just whatever's cheap. And I think this is one of those definitely those better LED lights. One of the uh, ones I'm actually I've been using, and I ended up buying a set of three of these. Are these uh, flapjacks from I think uh, Photo Deox makes these, and they're I love these sort of regular lights, the ones that Devin actually recommended to me, and I'm using one right now. These like plasticky, uh, <laughs> uh, what edge lit LEDs basically with like a yeah. nice color range, but they are plasticky, and uh, I've already broken a couple, uh, <laughs> knocking them over and, and tripping over cables and so but on. But they're cheap. Uh, but they're super cheap. They're like forty bucks, and they put out a ton of light. The light looks really good, but I can keep several of those cheap ones in my bag for danger, and then uh, several of these flapjacks for uh, tough situations where i you know i might knock it over bust it this one's actually fallen on its face three or four times and it still looks nice and good so uh, that's kind of what i'm moving to i'm really loving these tiny led lights in general and uh the the senior or senior matchbox also looks like a sexy deal now talking about lights this one's actually new from aperture and uh those guys have been doing a lot of good stuff with their light storm and some of these other uh light systems that they're putting out and this time we're getting a tiny cute little guy right here this is uh, the aperture alm 9 and you can see for about 45 bucks this is very similar to some of the tiny lights that you get from ican and a few of the other manufacturers it comes with a variable type stand it is rechargeable internal battery and 95 percent or 95 cri so uh, very decent there what do you think about these tiny lights, Devin? Uh, you know, you just mentioned that other one. What about going even smaller to like the baby lights? Do you have any of those in your collection? Uh, I do. I have. Um, I, I have an ICAN. I think they call it like a micro flood or mini flood or something like that, which is about the same size as this camera. Or I mean, I'm sorry, this light uh, with an internal battery that lasts maybe an hour. Uh, but I'll tell you what. I spent fifty bucks on that a couple months ago, and I wish this was coming down the line because. The light coming off of it, I, I don't have any scientific instruments, but I can just kind of tell when the CRI is like only maybe 80 or something like that. I can just kind of see a little bit of yellow in it or a little bit of pink, and it just doesn't have a very, you know, a, a very good LED light coming off of it compared to some of my pricier, bigger uh, ones. And Aperture, I feel like since they stopped with the. Um, uh, what was the old panel called? The 586 or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. The 5 something. When they upgraded those to the 672s and they brought in that high CRI rating, uh, I, I feel like since then they've been killing it because they've been producing great lights. Uh, they've been focusing on hard lights as well as like lights that are more adaptable. 
Um, and this this is one of those situations where I wish I knew this was coming because I would have much rather spent my fifty bucks on something like this uh, than the ICAN. But I needed a, a little micro flood for what I was doing, and so I went with it. And as as they show on their little video of their product, really great for like simulating a computer light. Or it's great for, uh, you know, a car light to put in the dash to, like, you know, kind of fill in a bit of the shadows for a nighttime car shot and stuff like that. Uh, refrigerators, whatever. You name it. Um, these things are just super useful. Video. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's it. It's, it's a different kind of video. I, I don't like, know. What, um, am I entering the Matrix or something? When I'm, I'm, for those right? of you listening, the video feels like um, some sort of cyberpunk uh, it, it does. montage it, it feels... from, like, the 90s. Or, or like early two thousands kind of like cyberpunk thing. Uh, I mean, Aperture. I, I think they're just trying new stuff. They don't really have a style of advertising yet. I think they're trying to figure that out. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think they've been killing it. I would love to get my hands on one of these kind of lights uh, because it looks like it's just uh, a good light all around to have. I like that this is fifty five hundred Kelvin too. Some of the small lights out there, like the Icans, have kind of a a wacky like uh, forty nine or forty nine hundred ish or fifty one hundred ish fifty five hundred and would... and I, I feel like that's because they're compensating for the fact that they're so blue but yeah. you're also not getting those other colors in there so they're trying to like minus the blue out of it but you just end up with this weird color space I mean I don't know a ton about color science um, but I have heard that people are now starting to walk away from CRI as a rating. Uh, because while it is pretty effective at telling you how good of a quality of light you're getting, um, CRI gives too much credit, I guess, to having a big green spike because it's only looking at the representation of eight or so colors. So they can actually kind of be off and you can still get a decent rating on it. I think for my purposes, everything I've seen that's over 95 has really looked brilliant. Uh, but I'm not a colorist, so I can't say that it's uh, it's perfection. So I think the the one that some people are looking at is called TLCI or something like that, uh, some kind of television standard hmm. uh, from Canada, maybe. Uh, but they, um, that's where I guess they sample like 24 colors to figure out uh, what kind of quality of light it has. And so some LED lights I've seen, I start reporting that number as their, uh, their color rendering index instead of the traditional CRI. Uh, just a note for you, something I was looking into this week that I found interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. That's a really interesting subject. I want to tell you, though, this ICANN light that I'm using right now, mm-hmm. um, after about two weeks of using these, uh, you can see in my face there's a slight green cast, and yeah. I haven't been able to compensate for that no matter what I do. I'm not really sure uh, what the story is on that, but uh, these ICANN lights, they shifted a little bit on me, and now... Uh, I do, uh, the color is just a little bit off. Like, I don't know if it's a right. CRI or, or what's going on, but, uh, and it only took a little while for him to sort of shift to a little bit of a, a greenish color. I'm probably going to end up uh, buying a couple of dedicated uh, of these iPad, uh, whatever, 155 panels and putting those around my office so that when we do the show, I can just have those like hanging off the wall or something. It's uh it's a little bit well, easier. You get some apertures, man. They're so small and so light. You can mount them anywhere. That's and, what's kind of brilliant about it. And they're USB powered too, which is actually yeah. pretty handy. <laughs> that was part that I liked about the iCans is you can you can actually charge them and they will do about an hour mm-hmm. and a half by themselves. Plus, uh, you just have to have a USB hub laying around and you can power them up that way. The only issue with that is long USB cables. Like, how often do you really need all your lights clustered within like a three foot radius? Like, that's right, not, yeah. not very conducive. I uh, usually need lights like here and there and and whatever and so then i end up running these like little wall warts if i'm traveling and then someone inevitably trips over it and the light weighs so little that it just flies (laughs) off of the thing and (laughs) smashes against the wall i mean for me personally uh i went because of the usb option too and the reason for that was for when i'm shoulder mounting my rig for documentary or news work um having the battery being able to charge that light and just kind of maintain power to that light but i can also unplug it when i need to and move it somewhere else it's kind of cool that i can like arrive on a location uh with the light already charged because it's been running off the battery and if i go oh i should really set up this light over here so it looks better i can just take it off my camera put it there without 
plugging in anything or hooking up a battery to it or carrying around a battery. So, like, it, it, as much as I was thinking and a built-in battery is kind of silly in actual use, uh, it's kind of nice that you have that ability in a split second to go, oh, I should move this over here, and I don't have to worry about cables. Yep. So that totally works for me, and that's why I'm in love with them. Well, and it's super handy, too, when you just need to shoot something for, like, a minute or two, and you just put your <laughs> yeah. light on. Because, I mean, a lot of times, you're not going to be shooting And you don't want to bring out, like, a one-by-one and a exactly. light stand It just and all gets ridiculous. Stuff. You're just like, oh, here, let me hold this light up real quick. I got it. Okay, done. Walk <laughs> off. Go do something else. Way easier. Yep. All right, speaking of small stuff, this one you threw in the show notes, and it's a, it's a little bit interesting, a little bit weird. Uh, we've all, this is kind of a subject that's come and gone many times. Uh, we've all seen things like the Camera Ranger and, and many of these other uh, USB adapters for Canon and Nikon cameras that allow you to control your camera remotely via a cell phone. Now a lot of camera manufacturers are actually just adding this as a Wi-Fi feature for the cameras. Canon and Nikon, of course, still don't have all of that settled, and you can't do video control of the Canon cameras. So Mm -hmm. this one is what, $85, Devin? And it is basically the same as the rest of these wireless controllers, except that, what, it's super tiny and has a good control system for an app? It does look like they've thought about the app design. Uh, Obviously, this is an Indiegogo, so most of our warnings still stand of like, it could be a completely different thing that doesn't work at all once you get it. Um, for me, I just, I, it was kind of nice to have such a small size. Uh, there's, you know, there are apps out there for free that just with a wireless router, you can do a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, but in this case, um, it it was kind of like, I like the size of it. I'm not a Canon shooter, but it's, you know, I'm always keeping my eye out for stuff like this. And it just looked like they really thought about the app. The app looks kind of like a professional app you would expect for something like Canon or Panasonic. Um, and you know, who knows how well it'll actually work in the field once the product's released. Uh, but it was one of those things where I was like, oh, it even has control for, uh, OS X and windows, which a lot of these little boxes I've seen, you know, they kind of have support. It's like maybe through a website or something like that. Uh, so it was just one of those things I go, oh, I could kind of see this being in like a studio environment. You can hook it up to your MacBook or, you know, your Windows uh, Surface tablet or something like that. It was just kind of a, a cool concept, and it looked like they kind of really thought it out. But once again, are they late to the game? Like, I feel like this market has kind of been saturated, uh, though they do boast having like tons of support for Canon and Nikon if you're a Nikon shooter. So yeah, the list of cameras that are available for uh, Nikon and Canon is actually pretty formidable. Uh, here you mm-hmm. go, folks, and it's a uh, it covers quite a few cameras. The one thing you mentioned, studio shooting. I don't know. To me, I, and I've I've worked with people that just do like stock footage and studio mm-hmm. uh, shoots all the time. A, a lot of times, you know what they use? They actually use Canon's native software running on just, Windows, and they plug just run in a tethered. US, yeah, they just run a tethered USB cable over to it, and and that's it. You know, it's it's pretty simple, really easy. And then their camera is already set up for light controls, and they have fixed light positions and so on so that you know if you're just doing a a standard headshot or a photo shot for a newspaper you don't do really like a lot of creative different things you just kind of churn them out one after the other and it it makes it really simple to remote control look at your image download your image check it out and say all right get out of here folks i'm done with you for today in that case the tethered option is the cheapest option if you're not moving around too much but it was something cool that if i had canon cameras again because i got rid of all mine but if i still had them it'd be something i'd be interested in so I'm still sitting on all my Canon class. Come on, Canon, the 5D Mark IV. <laughs> Four. Hopefully that yep. thing isn't a beast. All right, moving on. We've got a couple more things here in the show notes. And this one is actually, speaking. I should have transitioned with the moving on. Have you ever wanted to fly in a blimp, Devin? Have you ever <laughs> thought about floating through the sky in a aerial balloon? Well, you can't, but your, your uh, uh, quadcopter now could or your, you know, whatever. You can. F- mm-hmm. This is a weird design. It's interesting. What are they doing with this, Devin? It looks like a balloon slash drone, basically. Yeah. It, 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 it looks like a hybrid unit, and uh, they're trying to accomplish two things here. Because for one, when you run um, uh, a quadcopter, as you know, they're dangerous. And when they fail, they fail catastrophically. And it's kind of scary, and you don't really want them hanging over people. Um, hence, you know, some incidences where uh, when uh, people are at concerts and stuff like that, they get injured uh, because of the props and everything else uh, spinning around. So what Panasonic has done, and this is from Panasonic, 
they've kind of combined the two. They've really enlarged it. They've made a huge balloon, and then they've put the rotors kind of inside that balloon. And the reason being that they think that this is a superior product is, one, uh, it's safer uh, because the fact that the props are only used for moving and changing altitude and things like that, they aren't really actually used for lifting it. Instead of like a 15-minute flight time, you're talking about a couple hours easy because it's really a blimp. But unlike a blimp that usually has two small rotors underneath it and is pretty slow, this one you can have a lot of control over. So with that same kind of quadcopter design, they kind of like merge these two concepts of a blimp cam and a quadcopter cam into something that is safer. Uh, they say it would be quieter. Uh, because they're uh, the the I guess the blimp material or something like that's going to kind of bring down some of the noise and it doesn't have to spin the rotors as much to move around, as well as then having a small hub for the camera underneath it that you can do all your typical gimbal stuff, turn, pan, and all that. And they're talking about uh, because there is battery life available, uh, actually using lights inside the blimp so the blimp acts like a giant softbox. Uh, so uh, considering all those concepts, it could really make it. A great use case for uh, indoor stadiums, uh, for conferences and events, uh, possibly con- yeah, so lo- lots of stuff. And um, you know, there hasn't really been pricing or anything like that. It's just kind of been videos of like, hey, they're talking about it. It's not being used yet. So I think it's a probably just a patented design that they're trying out. Uh, but all in all, I, this kind of gets me interested because back before everyone got started with quadcopters, I had a friend who thought blimps were, were going to be the big thing. He's going to be able to buy a big blimp for like a couple thousand and then rent it out to all these events and everything else. And no one really bought into it. No one really wanted it, which was unfortunate. And then quadcopters came along, which were great for outdoor stuff. But still, you had the danger of being around people and everything else. Um, and so we've kind of seen a good and bad from the quadcopter thing. Uh, but I think that they've really got a winner here. They make this work and you can have it up there for an entire hour long, two hour long event. Uh, it's really cool. I just think it's really cool. Do you think uh, something like this would actually be practical though, outdoors in, uh, in a windy environment? Because I mean, I could see this in like a sealed dome or a big sports arena where it, yeah. it sort of is like its own atmosphere and you could, cause right. you're just really kind of keeping the buoyancy and moving it slowly across. But how do you think something like this would fare if you were trying to shoot, say an outdoor arena or, you know, something that wasn't in an in, in enclosed environment? Well, that's, that's exactly it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know until we kind of see it in action. I'm thinking to myself that it may be able to hold up better uh, than what I typically think of a blimp, just because blimps usually kind of work off of a rudder system and it makes it hard for them to react to wind blowing and the environment around them. But here you still have some of that quadcopter concept where uh, using accelerometers and everything else, it could be reacting to being blown around a little bit. I think that there is limitations. If there's any kind of a strong breeze, it's going to carry this thing away, I'm sure of it. But it may be able to kind of survive in an outdoor environment if the wind is light enough. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it would be interesting to see. I really want to see one in real life. I want to see one in person and uh, see what it looks like and uh, what it's like to fly. So speaking of drones, I got two other drone things that I didn't throw in the news, but they're kind of interesting. Did you see that uh, DJI pushed out an update for their drones that uh, uh, limits them flying over areas where firefighting is taking place? Oh, I did see that. Yeah, because apparently, like, people have been stupid with their drones. Well, well yeah, so a couple of, uh, of helicopters slash planes that drop uh, water and other uh, flame retardant systems on these fires have been blocked from flying because uh, people have gone up with their quadcopter to get this beautiful footage of the fires so that they could sell it to news mm-hmm. stations and, and put it on YouTube and whatever they're doing with it. And, <laughs> whatever. and because of that, um, this uh, DJI is basically working with another company that is is harvesting the data straight from the federal government's registry, showing you where the fires are taking place and what's going on, and then sort of geofencing those off, similar to what they've been trying to do with airports. I don't know if uh, this is a mandatory update or not, but I do know that it was released in the the latest update. Uh, Do do you think we're going to start seeing even more stuff blocked off from drones? I mean, they've already got the Capitol knocked out. You know, they've got uh, uh, certain monuments like... The soon um, sporting events, maybe. What's next? I, I I would I would think so, um, and probably not even for the reason of copyright for 
you know, uh, concerts or other things like that. I think really it's unfortunate, uh, but it's just people who aren't uh, exercising some common sense when it comes to piloting their drone. I mean, any place where there's actual aircraft flying around is not where your drone should be. And any place where security is a concern, uh, you should not be flying a drone around there. And I think some people just... Uh, they, they don't think two steps ahead for how it may this impact other people because you're absolutely right. Those drones go up and they see the drones and they go, we can't fly our possibly life-saving uh, helicopter or anything else in that area because if there's a collision, something happens, you could be talking about uh, people getting injured and killed uh, because these things are interfering with larger aircraft that are actually carrying people. Eek. So I, I, a lot of people think, oh, it's just my little drone. Who cares? But there's you know huge planes that get taken down just because a large bird gets sucked into the engine. I mean, imagine what would happen if you've got all this plastic and lithium ion batteries and all this other crap that gets you know hits a plane or gets sucked into something so it's it's unfortunate and i think yeah we're gonna see this emerge it's really hard to enforce and that's what kind of sucks about it and that's why it'd be nice if there was some common sense because when you think about it uh, the hobbyists who've been flying rc planes for a long time we never had any of these issues it's the fact that quadcopters have gotten so cheap and people have thrown cameras on it and that's exciting uh, that this is now becoming a problem and it needs to be something that we discuss. And we've seen how slow the FAA was at understanding drones in terms of, uh, you know, the regulations. Because what? It started with just, it's like, you know, RC planes. It follows the same rules. And then it became like this whole, you need to get registered and all this kind of stuff for it. Um, and you can't use it commercially without, like, a really big expensive license. And now it seems to, like, have come back full circle with just kind of, like, it falls under hobbyist rules uh, for the most case. So it's uh, it's one of those things that's, like, it's unfortunate. I But it's <laughs> going to happen. People are going to be stupid with their equipment. And the only way that you can kind of stop it is with regulation. Someone's going to dive bomb a crowd at some point. Now, yeah. one of the other things, and, and I like the blimp idea, but... What I think might actually beat out the blimp idea, and I'm pretty sure you and I saw this in action. Oh, yeah. These tethered drones. Now, maybe this one, obviously, is, is only meant for a small GoPro, but imagine a tethered drone with an umbilical cord that could also power up the uh, electronics and the uh, motors on the unit, mm -hmm. and you could fly it out over the crowd, keep it going indefinitely thanks to the power source that you're using, and get a little more... Uh, you know, control out of it. So if there is high winds or something like that, you could maintain your position a little bit better than a blimp. Uh, imagine mm -hmm. something like that being used as a stadium cam, so to speak, or an overhead cam. I mean, wouldn't that do the trick as well? I, I well, and I think that that could work really well under the concept of if, uh, if, if the tether where the tether is placed is smart, um, say like you have a really southbound wind, a really heavy wind, if you tether northbound, then the quadcopter really only has to worry about maintaining altitude. It doesn't have to worry about fighting that wind because that tether is going to hold it and kind of prevent it from going any further. So I think that, yeah, that could be an excellent way to kind of pop up some cameras uh, and get some unique perspectives and things like that. And you're right. Besides that one company, I haven't seen anyone else really touch tethered uh, quadcopters, which I think like in terms of ease of use and everything else is should I, I, I just expect there should be more people interested in this area because from what I saw, it was way easier to fly uh, than even the newest DJI Phantoms that have all their ultrasonic equipment and all that kind of stuff. I don't know, that DJI booth at the drone pavilion. <laughs> it man, was impressive. It was, it was pretty impressive, like being able to use image recognition software to recognize the ground location and move back to a spot based on, wow, that was, that was cool stuff. All right, speaking of other cool stuff, and this is another one I'm going to throw at you, Devin, because you threw this in the show notes. Uh, have you ever imagined being a muscle builder and then maybe taking that gym on the road? Uh, let's say maybe you wanted to, uh, I don't know, carry around your giant film camera in what looks to be like some sort of exoskeleton. This is an image stabilization system for not the rest of us, but for really big, big cameras. Devin, mm -hmm. what's so special about this thing? Well, it's it's kind of fascinating, right? Because really, this system only has one gimbal in it, uh, but you're kind of getting results of a three-axis gimbal. Uh, we've seen tons of this stuff before. We've kind of seen these exoskeleton suits. What makes this one special uh, is that this is probably the first one that brags about the fact that it can carry 
well, as they call it, maybe a little pretentiously, an actual camera. They're talking about film cameras. Uh, now, keep in mind that they've picked the right camera for this job because, as you notice, uh, they put the reels in the back, and the reels are vertical as opposed to ones where the reels may be at a slant um, or maybe like more in front of the camera because as the reel rolls, it's actually going to adjust the weight of that camera uh, left and right, and it's, it's going to screw with your balance. Here, really the only gimbal they have is a roll, and so it just makes sure that the camera maintains level. It's these big uh, hydraulics, I think, uh, spring, whatever they got in the back that's doing most of the heavy lifting um, and holding the camera up. But kind of in that, in being that it's lifted up, it's kind of a combination of both a mechanical steady arm, more or less, as well as uh, gimbal technology. And the results are super impressive. This stuff is super expensive, though. The, the the gimbal to control the roll on something that heavy, uh, this company charges six to 7000 just for that one gimbal alone. And then I have no idea what this suit costs with all this stuff. Uh, this is, Part of this is just me, like, kind of, like, really fascinated with uh, the lengths people go for kind of these mobile st- stabilized things. Uh, they show a shot that's, like, 10 minutes long. doesn't look like the guy gets tired at all because it's doing most of the heavy lifting, most of the weights on his hips. But that guy looks like uh, a beefcake, though, man. I mean, he's he like, does. He, he's way he's stronger than me. I'm not going to be able to pull that off. Uh, but still, it's kind of fascinating, and it's possible, you know, maybe we see something like this shrink down and come down the market uh, later on. But I, you know, for those people who are running around with 35 millimeter reels, this could be an opportunity for you to get a shot you wouldn't think of because three axis gimbals cannot carry huge lenses, huge map boxes, and all the other stuff that usually goes into a feature camera like, um, you know, your, your Aries. You see and all that, that right there where you almost couldn't get through the door because it's <laughs> because so it's freaking so big. big. <laughs> That's crazy. So, that's a but it's a really interesting rig, uh, man. I don't know when you get to something that looks like you're in a Batman film. Uh, <laughs> it, it's almost time to like rethink your strategy. Maybe installing a dolly in a track might be a better approach than uh, yeah doing something like that. I don't know. I've also have you seen those wire cams? I've seen some really great shots, uh, and they weren't just uh, 100%. Uh, practical. I, they had like uh, green screens and locations and so on, and uh, they did. Can't remember what movie it was, but I was I was talking to the guy that shot it. It was a it was a lower budget indie film, but they managed to rent this wire cam, and they started out with a green screen and a window, and so mm-hmm. they faked the outside exterior of the building. They fly the camera in through the window, and then go down the halls on this wire cam, and then turn the corner and into a room. And the shot looks gorgeous when they were done compositing and, and putting everything mm-hmm. together. And it's like, it's the quintessential, like, hey, I want to do this in one take. Look at how awesome I am. And, you know, it's like <laughs> as the camera's coming in through the window, you pick up your characters, like, walking next to it. And then they follow the character, switches off to the next guy and, like, rolls into the room. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize that wire cams were that versatile until I saw that. It, apparently... Uh, there's a system in there where even though it has like uh, strategically placed mounts to hold the wire supports, the roller that goes on the wire cam can actually roll over those nubs that are supporting the wire without tripping up the camera at all. And so it has some sort of like uh, spindle or something like that that just goes across it, rolls over it, and then continues on without stopping it. I'm not 100% sure the mechanics of how that works, but it, man, it looked really, really cool. No, and I mean, you're, you're right. Uh, while people develop technology like this, um, people have been doing really impressive shots with a lot less for a long time. And uh, still, I think for a point, um, uh, steady cams haven't gone anywhere. Everyone keeps thinking like the gimbals and everything else are like, oh, you get that steady cam look without a steady cam. But uh, just like these guys with this big exosuit, whatever uh, contraption, it's, uh, you know, a steady cam works just as well. Uh, it doesn't nearly cost as much either. And you can put half gimbal systems on top of a steady cam too. There's lots of options. So um, I, I guess it, it's supposed to make it kind of easier to operate and easier to maneuver. But um, I, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's all about the right tool for the right job because there's going to be some situations where this works way better if you're, like, changing altitude a lot, where something like a steady cam, you have to have a more complicated system in order to go from a high shot to a low shot in the same cut. So. Now, while we're talking about these systems being around for a long time, have you ever seen that old 1990s Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, motion in video 
a demonstration. <laughs> it's like it's got a guy in like white shorts running around him, and then they like yeah. switch over to this like push cart dolly with like a suspension mm-hmm. system to do these beautiful up and down shots and like rotate the camera via controller. And then you get this like motorcycle close up with the key. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll put a link to this in the show notes, guys. If you want to check it out, it's, it's kind of hilarious. Um, but they're, you know, it's all the technology that we see today only uh, done in the 90s. So like twice mm-hmm. as big and bulky. And look at this. <laughs> oh, man, they're flying a camera through on like a giant uh, suspension line. Oh, this is it's just some great stuff. Uh, I'm sorry I got distracted <laughs> with that little mess there. But it's uh, a great video. It's a great video. It's really fun. And it's got John claude Van Damme just like running around of like a, a man, a crazy man. In fact, that's in the show notes right now. OK, last thing on the show notes before we get out of here and. And it's probably time for my dinner after that. But uh, we've mm-hmm. got this uh, Nebula 4100 light. Now, uh, Nebula has been doing really good action control suspension systems. Uh, they had that, what, what was it, the 4500 or uh, 4900, the one that had the springs and the I three axes? I think that's axis a 4200. Cable? 4200. And, yes. and now this looks like one that's meant specifically for the Sony... Uh, crop sensor cameras is that correct probably the a6300 yeah and i think as well you can make it work with something like an lx100 1000 so (laughs) what's the price on this devin uh that one is 600 i believe hmm yeah now you gotta be looking at that and then i i fell into a rabbit hole on on amazon at the same time (laughs) and this is completely distracting for me too but uh look at this guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I know it's stupid and it's cheap, it's, but it's, it's like a tiny microscopic iPhone stabilizer. Yeah, it's a it's it's two axes. It looks like it's two axes. Does that yeah. seem like the case? That's what it looks like. Yeah, it does seem like the case. It's fifty two dollars and it holds your cell phone. <laughs> And it's adorable. Look at this adorable thing. All right, I'm sorry, I'm done. Anyway, that is cute. That's the if you ever end up on Amazon and you're just like digging around, uh, that's the sort of thing you find. Uh, Anyway, this is the Nebula. They've got some cool stuff. Uh, Anything exciting about this? You threw in the show notes. I saw it and I was like, yeah, great, another stabilizer that's meant for a specific camera. But what do you do with it once you've uh, outgrown your camera and move on to the next generation? Well, I mean, for that, if you go for a thousand bucks, that is uh, where you're talking about the 4200 that has quote unquote five axis, and that's where it's got double spring arms, kind of like what you find on a steady arm, uh, that actually lifts up and kind of helps to take care of that height uh, stabilization that most three axis gimbals don't take care of. So, if you're if you're slightly larger, you're talking about two pounds or something like that. You can spend a little bit more, uh, but this one is one of those where. I feel like people were kind of waiting for something that was a little smaller that had a 32-bit processor in it, and uh, I haven't I haven't tried like a bazillion different uh, handheld Steadicams things. Other guys have, I haven't, so you might want to go to them for reviews on that kind of stuff. But uh, it's just it, it includes the joystick too for like pan and tilt control and stuff like that, and I haven't necessarily seen that in the ones that are built for smaller cameras. It tends to just have a button that kind of switches modes. So it it was just one of those that, you know, 1.2 kilograms maximum payload, which, like you said, A7S, or uh, I'm sorry, A6300, or maybe an LX100, or one of those smaller cameras. Um, Just the two hours of battery life and the fact that it's small means, hey, you could add some stabilization. But like you pointed out, the built-in stabilization, the LX1000 is pretty damn good. Well, and I want to see some demos of this, and I haven't seen them anywhere, but there's all these uh, three-axis gimbals. How do they work with the in-camera image stabilization combination? Does that provide a smoother reaction in the camera, or does that end up screwing things up because there's double compensation? And, I, I you know, I have a rig here that I could probably... Uh, try it out on? Try it out on uh, from Cam TV, but it's... It's such it sounds a pain. like you should make a video about it. It's such a pain in the butt to balance those. Like it's one of the early it ones is. where you have to unscrew stuff and screw it back in again. And mm-hmm. it's not, you know, the newer ones like there's this transition period with these three axis stabilizers where like you, you had to like kind of be a clockwork mechanic to work on. You had to like adjust this and tweak this, and now they've got them set up so it's like, oh yeah, you just uh, unclip this fast release and slide it down a little bit and then hook it back on again. But this is not one of those, so it ended up being like a headache for me and it, it mostly is a hanger queen it doesn't go 
anywhere. But uh, mm -hmm. if you know of a video that's already out there that I don't have to recreate, I would love for you to uh, send us a link to that because I'd be interested in checking it out. Now, we're at the end of the show notes, Devin. Do you have anything yes. else before we get out here? I know you got the Y or the Yi action cam in your hand, and you also were showing me another 4K Kickstarter camera that you got suckered into. <laughs> yeah, well, because it was like less than 100 bucks. Um, uh, I apologize for those that are listening to the podcast, but uh, if I can get the reflection right, this camera here has a 4K logo, which, as everyone knows, 4K means 4K video. No, this <laughs> means 4K photos is what this means. This guy only shoots at 1080p. That's it. Uh, almost no other kind of features on this camera besides the fact that uh, they're mostly working off the fact it's magnetic. You can magnetically add batteries to it, and they had a screen that they sold with it to. Um, for me, it was kind of like, I think it was 80 bucks as like an early buy-in. And I was like, oh, I could kind of set this as a, a throwaway camera or, you know, something I throw in the bottom of my bag that, you know, may come in handy later or something where I go, I really want that shot, but I know the camera's going to get destroyed. I throw in one of these guys. So, um, but yeah, things to be aware of because they did advertise it as a 4k camera. And then I noticed as it got closer and closer to release, they never uploaded 4k footage. All the, all the demos on YouTube were 1080p. I'm like, why? Wow. So it's, uh, you know, beware. Uh, be very aware. It, it is a working camera with an app that works, and it does everything it's supposed to do, but the 4K part is a little overzealous. So. At 80 bucks, though, I mean, aren't there a ton of uh, cameras in that price range or cheaper that are already for sale on Amazon and, and some of these other retailers? Absolutely, and it probably uses the same board and the same lens and the same sensor. Uh, I was mostly going off of the uh, the build quality, all the included waterproof accessories and everything else like that. So uh, I just I it, it looked kind of like an interesting product, and I was like, eh, it, as long as it captures video, um, I'm sure I'll find a use for it. Uh, whether it's uh, becomes a glorified webcam or uh, you know a studio cam or something like that, so. Now, you mentioned the back screen. You've got the Yi action cam in front of you. I, yes. I've kind of gushed about it a little bit because I think the thing is great. Uh, mm -hmm. You've seen the screen now. What do you think of the screen on that guy? The screen is actually really impressive. I mean, uh, comparing it to the GoPro screen uh, backpack is not fair because I think that backpack's like a 360p screen. This backpack way, right here is Because it's old. It's horrible. They, they should have updated it last year or a year before that to something a little better, charge a little bit more for it, but they keep charging the same price for that screen, uh, which is not impressive. And the touchscreen on the Yao Yi, or uh, how do you pronounce it, is actually really responsive. It's really sharp. And I was really surprised at the color and the brightness. You turn the brightness up on that guy, and I'm like, this actually is like usable in sunlight. This is not bad. So uh, I have been impressed with that. I've been a little disappointed at the lack of ports and all the other features uh, that lack on that camera. But yeah, in terms of the screen and usability, it's super fast to boot up, and it's super quick to use, and I love that. Now, a couple updates on that particular camera. Uh, I am I was made aware of a, a firmware update, a version 1.0.12, I believe. And that added several things. One of them is control inside of a case. So you can set it up to have uh, multiple buttons and long presses do different things so that the single button doesn't inhibit you changing features while you're underwater or something like that. But the other update is actually that it now allows uh, USB to standard def definition output right, uh, via yeah. the USB port. So if you were looking for simply monitoring for something like a drone or a distance It is capable viewing, of that. Yes. It is now capable of that, which is, is nice. Uh, the other thing is the app. I mean, I was really surprised. Devin, have you used the app yet? Yes, I have used the app. It's freaking I, responsive. Uh, you set it up for five, uh, 5 gigahertz connection, and like the refresh mm. rate is almost zero milliseconds. I mean, not zero completely, but it's so but there's, small. That there's it's very like, little delay. Exactly. Yeah, it's – there's uh, – I can't think of it right now. There's still like one or two features that I couldn't change inside the camera itself, which I think may have been like its volume or something. There was like one or two that I found I had to go into the app in order to change, but – uh, for the most part, I while the app maybe isn't the prettiest thing out there, it's clear, it's easy to use, and it's stable, uh, which is more than you get from anyone who's not GoPro these days. Well, even uh, GoPro, man. I mean, I just bonded with my GoPro the other day with my phone, and it, it took uh, probably like 
three or four minutes worth of hunting and, and re-attempt to connect before oh, it really? finally like worked. And then it was like laggy. And that was just in a, a mild Wi-Fi environment. The Yi action cam, like as soon as I open the app up and hit connect, mm-hmm. it's just like that, instantaneous. That five gigahertz almost. makes a big difference. That the that five gigahertz makes a huge difference, I think, in that situation. The uh it it, it is and um Especially compared to their last camera, I don't know if you've ever used the camera that came before the 4K camera. No, uh, it it was touted as being like a really good 1080p camera that costs a hundred dollars, I think eighty dollars, something like that. Um, that was really impressive. My buddy got it, and his two biggest complaints was uh, one, there was no way to change the mode without the app. Because uh, he was actually taking out backpacking and stuff like that. Didn't necessarily want to whip out the cell phone, get it connected just in order to change it to time-lapse mode or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there was no button controls. You had to do everything through the app. And then the app was pretty much all Chinese and it was broken and didn't work well at all. And it seems like this company had listened to all those complaints because now we get a screen and a menu system that works great and an app that like works really well. So I'm super impressed with it. Um even though I may say that it, you know, is lacking a few features that I like about the GoPros. Well, I also heard rumors that there would be a possible uh, Bluetooth audio adapter for this guy, which would r- allow untethered audio into it. I-, I don't know if that's the case, but it does have a regular Bluetooth antenna built into the system, and it wouldn't be that hard to change the Bluetooth stream to go directly to the audio via sure. some chip well, updates. And- Keep keep in mind, too, how that would actually be a feature that GoPro doesn't have. Because while GoPro does allow you to use adapters to hook up audio, there really isn't a way to throw a GoPro in a waterproof case and then provide audio to it while still maintaining its waterproofness. So in this situation, you could actually throw the GoPro in a water, a water situ, a wet situation and have it protected and still provide decent audio to it you know as good of an audio as you get on an action camera so what would be the propagation of bluetooth though underwater would i mean oh well going underwater <laughs> that's non-existent i think wi-fi probably gets about two feet underwater then it's dead yeah uh, because of the high frequency and the density of water but i'm talking about if you're like on like rain boat, or something that's like yeah, incremental weather yeah you got rain you got snow you can keep your camera protected and while also getting really great audio i mean imagine that like uh you snowboard you can yeah, put it in true. the protective case, go snowboarding, and put you know a Bluetooth mic inside of your jacket, and you can sit there and get great audio while you're you know getting great video too. So scream it, YOLO, be... bro, as you go down the mountain and get it in <laughs> perfect audio resolution. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I mean, if that feature uh, comes to life, I'd be very excited for trying that out. All right, that sounds great. We'll we'll have more info on that camera as we mess around with it. And uh, hopefully Devin will be around for at least a couple shows before <laughs> he moves off to L.A. and leaves us for his exciting new life as a entrepreneur slash filmmaker. Uh, on mm-hmm. that note, guys, where can we find you, Devin? You just find me on Twitter, at DevoCut. Yeah, well, don't you have a website that have the similar name? Yeah, I mean, there's DevoCut.com, but it's mostly just kind of like real stuff. It's not like I really put a lot of videos or anything else like that if, if you want to get to know me or see what i'm working on it's on my twitter and my instagram it's not on my website so all right guys you can find me at dslrfilmnoob.com you can find me on twitter at dslrfilmnoob you can find this podcast on itunes and soundcloud and anywhere audio podcasts are distributed don't forget that the giveaway can be found at planet5d.com slash giveaway noobs. So check that out if you want to win some free stuff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We look forward to your comments on YouTube and other locations. So be sure to leave them. Tell us what you think. Make sure you give Devin that a boy for showing up for an episode (laughs) because it makes him feel a lot better. He thinks that uh, he doesn't bring enough to the show and I think he brings a lot. So I enjoy (laughs) Devin immensely and I love having him. We'll see you guys next time as I stroke his ego on another (laughs) exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 